Yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome to the Quadcast, episode six, y'all. <laughs> Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Wow, these intros are getting crazier and crazier. <laughs> so um, I'm excited to introduce our sponsors for this episode, Medical Scribes of Canada. These guys reached out to us after hearing the episode on Medical Scribes with Dr. Dwayne Hickling, and I got I got to tell you, they do amazing work. This group is co-founded by Dr. Peter Graves, an eMERGE physician with over 25 years of experience, and his son, Stephen Graves. And they've established a group of scribes that can, can improve your work environment, that can enhance your group's efficiency, and most importantly, improve on the on the patient experience. So if your organization is looking to improve on any of these things, please contact them at medicalscribesofcanada.ca. That's medicalscribesofcanada.ca. Okay, we are now on episode six. And once again, I got to give love to all the feedback that we've received over the last few episodes, especially the last one on grief. I've been touched by people reaching out and telling their stories by either text messages or emails to our uh, quadcast99 at gmail.com. It's been, it's been amazing hearing your stories. So please keep them coming. But today's episode, we are looking at futile care from a, a nurse's perspective what is it like to take care of patients where you feel like the care you're providing will not benefit? And full disclosure, this episode isn't as much about solutions as it is about increasing awareness. What is the impact of taking care of these patients on our care, on our healthcare team, on our on our frontline healthcare providers? Because without a doubt, we are seeing more burnout. We're seeing more moral distress under these circumstances. So bringing up the awareness, hopefully we'll start coming up with solutions to be able to navigate through these problems. And on today's episode, we got Carly Hickey and Marcel Rocher. Between them, they have almost 40 years of nursing experience. I know them through working at ICU at the Civic Hospital. And their insights here are, are tremendous. And I, I really think you guys are going to enjoy this episode. So um, thanks for tuning in. Once again, for feedback, let us know at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Uh, we appreciate hearing from you. Marcel and Carly, welcome to the podcast. Thank thanks you for, for having, having us. us. You know what? I've been so excited about this for a long time. We get... <laughs> The king and queen of the ICU <laughs> nursing community. Which am I? <laughs> <laughs> I? I can't comment on there. Um, so, yeah, thanks for joining. I do have to comment on one thing. So yesterday we had a quick powwow to kind of d- decide the main themes of what we're going to talk about today. And I accidentally pressed FaceTime instead of doing a conference call. So I saw Marcel post call <laughs> and... Let me tell you something. I feel like I'm never going to be the same. This is the way you want to start with this? Fair enough. We, Fair enough. I, I, would, I would take my shots at the end if I were you, but if you want to start with yeah. that, here's how uh, listeners, here's how Quad manages to get all this stuff done in a day, right? He called us from the gym and he was doing sets. He would ask a question and then he would bench, right? And then we went to the shower with him. I don't know how Carly felt about that. And then we went through the drive-thru. We picked up dry cleaning. And then he's like, okay, okay. And I can hear the kids running around and he hung up on us. 
it, it did get a little crazy. That was a bit, it's because it was impromptu. I didn't know we were actually going to be able to chance to, t- to speak. I had to go vote. You know what I'm saying? Be a good <laughs> Canadian citizen. I was dry clean, yep. but you went voting. <laughs> I went voting and the kids saw me, so then they start to harass me. Anyways, thanks for coming. Um, I thought we could start off with getting into the issues around futile care. So you heard Gianni and I's discussion, and it was a very physician-centric discussion, Mm -hmm. right? And so I wanted the listener to hear from the perspective of the nurses that are actually taking care of the patients 24-7 at the bedside and hearing your perspective. And I think maybe that's a good place to start. So, Carly, do you want to comment? So I think when we approach this discussion about futility of care, um, there is, you know, a range of patients that we take care of. And it's not the ones who can't speak for themselves. It's the ones who have powers of attorney or substitute decision makers who have to be their voice. And that's where I feel personally the divide um, comes into play where, Mm. you know, people who can um, speak up for themselves, make their own decisions. I have no problem with whatever they decide for themselves. But when it comes into a decision from a loved one who's speaking on their behalf and maybe making the wrong decision based on their known wishes or needs, that's where I think the conflict starts to arise for most healthcare providers. And so when we talk about futility, um, you know, it is a charged subject matter for some because it comes from different perspectives. We never want to think that not trying to save somebody uh, is worthwhile. You know, there's always worth in that life for sure. Uh, The subject of futility for me is more emphasized when our efforts go beyond a quality of life that we can provide for that person. Mm. Um, You know, when they're not able to speak or communicate when, as Dr. Digidio described previously, when we're doing things to these people um, that are causing them so much pain, stress, post-traumatic stress, you know, whatever um, we can describe to be that burden for someone, that's where futility really shines for me, unfortunately. Mm. And what is it like taking care of patients like this, where you do see that there is an element of futility, however you define it, where you're not being, you're not in a situation where you don't think you could provide the patient with their achievable goals, right? Like what is it, what is it like for at the bedside? I empathize with, with a lot of the nurses who really sense that futility and are morally like, compromised almost right they Mm -hmm. they they hate what they're doing and they can articulate it so well i mean they can they can talk about exactly what it is like the pain that the patient is having with every single turn every dressing change every suction you know and uh, again we talked about this yesterday i don't have as much trouble with that i think as the as the average nurse um partly from experience and Partly from, uh, uh, partly from just I can departmentalize it. You know what I mean? I, I say that I know this is that there's nothing we can do. Like we we're in the process of of dealing with it constantly, but uh, I don't know. I have a little bit more acceptance of it. I think than a lot of people. So what I'm hearing is like because of like how long you've been doing this, Marcel? Thirty years. Thirty years. Mm-hmm. And what would Marcel twenty years ago? say, in circumstances like this? 20 years ago, I'd be close probably to where the average nurse, I would say, is today. And the fact that I would be lamenting about what I'm doing. And you don't do it at the bedside. You don't do it in front of the patient, conscious or not. But you, you know, if you walk into any, and I'm sure this is the same everywhere, if you walk into any nursing lounge, you know, 25% of the conversation is, you know, is people venting about what a horrible thing they're doing in some of these because it's just it's overwhelming for a lot of people to have to do that so in such close proximity to someone that ill mm-hmm. with no hope you know right. what i mean if i can add to that you know a lot of the patients that we do take care of we can relate to in some way 
This mm. person is a grandfather, you know, a mother, a sister. Uh, we can, I would argue that most nurses can find somebody that fits that patient description in their life somehow. And for me, at least, I would think sometimes in times of distress, I would think, you know, I couldn't do this to my father. I couldn't do this to my mother. And I think sometimes that plays into, you know, the human element of being a nurse that can't be ignored. Yeah, that's that's the for me, the tangible part is like I legit would never want this done to my mom, sister, yeah. loved one, that's exactly friend, yes. enemy. Yeah, that's exactly and it. And we're doing it. Yeah. You know, and the hard part, too, is sometimes you'll even convey this to family. I'll sit down and say, like, I would not I w- would not do this to my mom. It, it wears on you. And. When we say it, it wears on you. This is a part that, like I mentioned in our first podcast, that was very enlightening to me is the the impact it can have on you guys, you know, because there is an impact on docs too, but I I don't think it's as prominent or as uh, strong as it it can be at the, uh, with the bedside nurse. So like what, yeah, you don't, whether it's personal example or not, like what is the effect that it has on you? Like after a tough shift, after taking care of one of these patients at home. So I'd have to go back 30 years for that. Yeah. It happened to me maybe twice. Uh, and there was a, um, a patient with a Gillian Barry, not a futile case, but, but he was essentially locked in, could only move with his eyes. And this is who I'm um, taking care of very early in my career. And, developed a very strong attachment. I had him repeatedly, repeatedly. And they joked how I could, you know, with, with just him moving his eyes a little bit, I could tell whether he was kidding or whether he was serious or whatever. And, you know, doing that Braille alphabet, you know, the, the, the bliss board alphabet of having to spell words out one at a time. And he died suddenly. And I was useless for three months. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, it was like someone... Yeah. And and it was like that. It was like having your heart broken the first time. Like, okay, I'm never having that happen mm-hmm. again. You know what I mean? And that was early on. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, people forget that we're human beings, to be honest with you. Like, when they walk in the room, like, they know we're human beings, but they, I think it it's somehow missed. Um, how hard was it to come to work? It, it was like, it was like a close, personal family member passing. It was that mm-hmm. same, I had... You know, all those clinical depressions, all those, the, what's the point in everything, you know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. And people sensed it. People said, like, are you okay or whatnot? And I even knew what directly was, was happening um, or what it was a result of. But there was, you couldn't talk your way out of it. You know, mm-hmm. you couldn't rationalize your way out of it. And it was at that point that I said, like, the first time I got my heart broke. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to be much more realistic about, you know, about patient care. I still treat or try to treat every patient, I like I walk in the room, that was something I, I learned from senior staff when I first started is that as soon as you lay eyes on a patient, you imagine if they're your brother, sister, uncle, mm. cousin, you know what I mean? And, uh, but, but you have to, you have to have that professional distance or, and I, and I, I empathize because some nurses I think can't separate that. They empathize, they feel what the patient's feeling mm. and that makes them better nurses. You know what I mean? But Dealing with that, uh, you know, in, in those futile cases, it's it's a form of torture. Yeah. What about you, Carly? Any either examples or stories come to mind? Yeah. So um, extending from what Marcel was saying, you know, there's things that we do to take care of patients in the intensive care unit that are that can cause a lot more pain than others. When it's, you know, somebody who has a very promising outcome, you know, I can ambulate that patient while they're intubated. I can get them out of bed. I know that pain is gain, you know, and we Mm -hmm. know from the research that sometimes we have to do things with analgesia, with, you know, a little bit of sedation, uh, whatever the case may be. We do these things to help make the person better. You know, um, when I sit a patient up at the bedside and, you know, they're uncomfortable, but I know that it's because we're, you know, um, alleviating their skin from pressure points. We're able to open up their lungs to Mm. breathe a little bit better. I know that there is reason in my actions because I'm making them better and we're going to get, 
you know, to see them leave our intensive care unit. So I can do those things in that time. It's when you know that you're causing harm to somebody, you know, and it could be the littlest thing. It could be turning a patient that breaks my heart because, you know, you see the physiologic changes and, you know, um, the expression of pain in whatever form it comes out of in the patient, or you see, you know, a new pressure ulcer that as a nurse, I'm turning my patients maybe every two hours or more so if that's necessary. I'm trying to do everything I can to prevent these things and you can't prevent them because Mm -hmm. you know that this is just going to be what it becomes, right? Mm -hmm. It's a slow, um, it's a very slow death when I look at these people. Uh, Mm -hmm. Every dressing change, when I have to change an intravenous line, it's the tiniest little things that just break my heart. And that's not the same way when it comes to, you know, more painful interactions that we have to have with patients. Um, so I don't know if that's. A- no, I, I think that puts things into a lot of perspective. It's like, like there are frankly things that we do that are painful, like, you know, yeah. uh, no, or uncomfortable. Yeah. And we do our best to try and alleviate those things, but we hear from patients afterwards like how uncomfortable some of the things are dressing changes as you mentioned you got uh, an open wound that's got a dressing on it and you're not even in a position to be able to explain or express how much pain you're having before the change you know um suctioning you know imagining every like how often like if say a patient's got an active lung infection how often we suctioning down their their uh trachea oh Variable, but I mean, it like can be several times an hour. Yeah, but. yeah exactly. Yeah. And depending on how, what's going on, that patient will feel like they're suffocating for periods of time. Yeah. And like, that's just, that's something that happens on it. That's a regular treatment. Yeah. And I often tell patients too, like, even if you wanted to do something as simple as scratch your nose or you had an itch, you can't do that. Anything movement towards the towards your mouth or under tracheal tube where we think you're going to pull out something is not feasible. Like it is... genuinely a very difficult process. Right. And the the thing about that is that all those, you know, things that Carly's describing, getting them up, suctioning, you're talking about, right, is those those you can all rationalize that I'm doing this because I'm going to put this guy back in the game. Right. I'm going to put him, but he's 60 years old, but I'm going to, I'm going to, he's going to watch his grandkids graduate. You know what I mean? So I'm giving him pain Right. But there is a goal here and we're going to we're going to take this patient somewhere that we're all going to be happy with later. Mm. It's those people that, you know, the best case scenario. Right. And and again, that's best case. And I don't believe the best case scenario is what's going to happen. But the best case scenario is you're looking at long term care institution lying on your back, being turned a couple of times. a day. You're not going anywhere. You're not seeing anything. You had dementia before you started and with multi-system organ failure that you came in with. This 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 is only going to end when we stop it, right? We're, yeah. we're all, literally all we're doing is prolonging your life. Now you're asking me about suctioning and dressing. It's just yeah, you know what yeah. I mean, like, and like people don't realize too. When you you kind of brought up a good point, you know, in 2019 in an ICU, it is actually hard to die. <laughs> it is. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. We are good at keeping your lungs working, keeping that heart beating. We do the work of of uh, your kidneys through dialysis. We're good at that. Mm-hmm. And you think about how many times, how rare it is that people die on maximum treatment. So it, it really comes down to quality of life. And we're talking about day-to-day activities. Think about, like, some of these chronic cases. I can think of a case from about six years ago where a gentleman was in our ICU for, I, I want to say, at least six months, and I'm probably underestimating it. Mm-hmm. And you guys will probably know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. I believe his fingers were starting to, to yeah. fall off. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Fingers falling off. Yeah. And we're and we're supposed to be keep doing what we're doing. And you, you saw his fingers. I, I saw the rest of it. And I know why nurses are crying and, and, and like, leaving because, like, I'm never doing that again. Like, I, that's, I just, I just, I crossed the line and I'm, you know, I'm, just never doing that again. And you think about why y'all got into this game. Yeah. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? I, I don't want to speak for you, but I mean, we're kind of all in the similar boat where we got in this game to get people better, yeah. to get people functional, yeah. to improve their quality of life, get them out of this rut, this, this hiccup in the road here or whatever the expression is. And just to see things like that, like it's, I don't know, you, you often, and we talked about this yesterday, you have to, you often wonder, it's like, what are their intentions? That, you know? Exactly. My thought is like, I can't imagine now, we're not talking about specific cases, but um, I think Gianni pointed out that it was, a lot of those are religious based, mm. right? Uh, it is, you know, religious or cultural that, that, that we don't do anything that hastens this person's ending, which I don't agree with like on so many levels, but even on that, on that particular point, thinking, well, we didn't have to offer all this stuff to begin with. And, you know, we can take away what's not going to hasten his death, but we can focus on his comfort. And if, you know, we're not going to do anything to hasten his passing, but we could just focus on making sure that he's comfortable. And dignified. And dignified. Dignified is the number one thing that I center my care around. Um, because you lose so much dignity sometimes in an intensive care setting. Uh, even my recent experience becoming a mother, you know, mm -hmm. there were times where that was not dignified and mm -hmm. I was completely competent throughout my, you know, one day of hospital stay. Mm. Um, and I got to control who was visiting me. I got to control who, and say, yes, I can have these visitors or no, I won't have these vis visitors. Um, and so we talked a little bit yesterday about who should be visiting these people, um, not the patients who can decide, yes, I want so-and-so to come in or no, please don't let these people. It's, you know, when they don't have a voice and there's somebody speak on, on, speaking on their behalf um, to permit visitors. It's, you know, sometimes it's huge communities of people coming in and seeing this person on their worst day. Uh -huh. um, and I think... Would this person have wanted that? Is, um, is there anyone thinking from their perspective? Um, and I say that because um, I had a family member who was in the hospital who had lots and lots of visitors. And at one point he said to me, I know these people love me and they want to see me, but I'm so tired. I look terrible. I can't shower. I don't want people seeing me this way. Um, and that for me was very real. And has really changed, you know, my perspective of when people visit. And I even think of times where patients who are becoming well, um, you know, they say, can you brush my hair or can you put a little bit of, you know, lipstick on or can you clean my face before, you know, my loved one comes in and visits me. And they're just so um, aware of the impression they'll make on their visitors. Right. And sometimes when it's a case where they can't, the patient can't speak for themselves. It's, you know, I wonder exactly like you said, who is this decision for? Yeah. I, I you brought up a, a bunch of good points, but I, I do think ultimately the theme of like we, I often question, and I always bring this up in these tough times. It's like, who are we thinking about? I even say this, I hate to say this. I even say this to docs too. You know what I'm saying? Like when we come to these tough decisions, it's like, you know, as you mentioned, these all these people coming in to visit their, their loved one. Would Elroy want their second cousin, uh, Herbert, coming in at this time when they're like have lost significant amount of dignity? They've, you know, throughout their, their course in hospital or even like I'll often even say like uh during these tough times. And I, le I learned this from Pierre Cardinal, which uh, i got to give props to. Um, if said loved one was looking at themselves at the at the, the foot of the bed with those, all these lines attached to them, uh -huh. the, 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 the despair that they've gone through already, would they want us to keep going? Would they want this care for themselves? Knowing, especially knowing when we know that the outcome looks dire, you know, and often, I must say, that is it does put things into perspective quite often with uh, patients and families. But uh, it ultimately comes down to, are we actually thinking about what is best for the patient in front of us? Because all of us have our biases. And, like, 
I don't want to lose my mom. I don't want to lose my dad, uh-huh. right? And I have this fear of death or I have all these kind of these these concerns that I'm putting out on the table, but it's affecting the care for our loved ones, you know? And on that note, I don't know if some people ever think grandma's going to ever die. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, no joke. Like, oh, it was, you know, I see this happen, right? Okay, it was a normal admission. You know, things are too far gone. Patient passes, end of it. And the family comes in and, oh, it's a tragedy. I mean, she was 92. Mm. Like, you know, and you don't say anything. You don't say anything because, you know, you, you give hugs out and, you know, hand out Kleenexes. But the line is like, how old do you think she was? Like, at what point? Like, my line is, I think it should be mandatory, Right. That you have a sit down with a healthcare professional and your substitute, as you mentioned, your POA at like, I don't know, 65, mm. where you talk about these things and you, 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 if no more than to just to broach them so they don't come as a shock at a later date, but so people can say, no, I don't want this. You know mm. what I mean? And it be documented because people come in with living wills now and it's just like my parents prearranged a funeral. That's awesome because mm-hmm. I don't know what you want or who you want. You know what I mean? And if you, if you, you know, laid it out like that, that that's, that's great because it's an inevitability for everybody. Right. Mm. It's interesting. It is a, a very interesting fact that how many people like what Marcel is describing is unfortunately fairly common. When we come across, I, was, I, I came across a hundred year old mm-hmm. and they're like, I can't believe, you know, she's this sick right now. I'm like, this. That's three. She's got three figures in her in her name in yeah. her in her age. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. like she was her social insurance number is sixteen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And see, I'm on the opposite spectrum. Where as a critical care nurse for nine years, this is my life. This is what I know. And as I was you know, getting ready to go to the hospital, you know, a few weeks before my son, I was probably extremely hormonal, but I said to my husband, who's an ICU doc, you know, these are my wishes. And he said, Carly, we're not talking about this. And I said, listen, you know, things could happen. So there's now us on the opposite end of the spectrum, but I think it's so healthy to have those conversations. And let me tell you, I have had conversations with my grandmother with my mother, Mm. you know, I had them with my stepdad, I've had them with my father. And I think the perspective of the fragility of life that nurses have, all nurses, but more so critical care nurses, you know, that drives that need to have those those discussions and to prepare because death is a certainty in life. That's the only thing in my perspective that is certain we prepare for job interviews we prepare lunches for school and work the next day we prepare for all of these other things that are so routine in our life except for the one thing that is certain that Mm. will come and whether it's you know people will say oh i don't want to jinx it i don't want to i don't want to think about it i don't i i don't have the emotional capacity to even have that conversation we have to find the strength to do that because it will happen And I feel that in those palliative situations or end of life situations where I've had these sensitive discussions, the families who adjust so much better are the ones who have had those conversations Mm -hmm. and there's less guilt. There's a sense of lightness in the conversation Mm -hmm. uh, or even the discussions that they have in the room. You know, it's a little bit more lighthearted. You can talk about what, you know, Uncle Gus's um, favorite hobbies were or what kind of food he liked or his life travels. Why he went to the strip club every second Thursday. (laughs) And there's laughs and, you know, it's there's such a different tone rather than this stress of having to make this heavily weighted decision that could have been well prepared for. And that's something that I really try to talk to everyone about Um, and especially getting a large family all on the same page. You know, sometimes we see where the power of attorney or substitute decision maker has had that conversation, but then there's another loved one who says, no, we can't do this. Or, Mm -hmm. and there's that, that there's that familial conflict when you're losing a loved one, you don't want family conflict. And the way to avoid all that, in my opinion, is to prepare and have those conversations, at least with one or two witnesses who can corroborate that decision. Um, I do think. A lot of this is on docs, 
that are having these conversations, like another guru we knew, Lori Garnett, okay? He emphasized the fact that you do not want to have that guilt put onto the family. Like, I want, I would rather a family be upset at me for bringing up a, a, a plan of care that, that pushes towards palliative approach or comfort measures. And I'd rather them blame me than blame any of their siblings because that messes up that relationship uh-huh. for life. Uh-huh. Yeah. That impacts that relationship for the rest of their days. And that is not what we, like one of the worst questions we could ask anybody is like, what do you want us to do? Yeah. Never. Any yeah. docs that are listening to this now, never ask that question. Yeah. It should be, it should come from us. It should be a recommendation. Recommendation. From us. That's an excellent approach. You know what I'm saying? It, yeah. it just don't put the weight on their shoulders. It's like, what, what, like, honestly, if you see someone in distress that can't breathe, it's like, uh, what, what else are they going to say? Uh-huh. You know, you got to give, you got to put things into perspective. And, and you know, the way I open that conversation is when I go to a, a, a race call, and Sorry, it's race, an, race call is um, a rapid a, yeah, like our, assessment our, of critical events. Yeah, it's our medical ICU, outreach team. Yeah, exactly. Like an ICU team outreach, yeah. that comes sees sick patients on the ward. So um, when we go to those calls uh, where it's very obvious that's, you know, the patient's going to pass, but there's been no discussion. Mm-hmm. I will say Miles' line is, is that is I asked the family, did the patient ever discuss end of life, you know, goals of care, that type of thing. Because again, patient centered, right. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe one in 50, you know, has had that discussion, which is odd because he has a chronic, you know, terminal illness. So you think it would have come up, which is an interesting perspective as well. When we went to a conference in Toronto, that one of the number one complaints, everyone, all these are, Physicians, nurses, RTs, all in the race across Ontario. And one of the number one complaints was having to go to to calls where it's obviously end of life and be the first people to discuss end of life care with patients in this ballpark. Crazy, right? It is. It is crazy. So my uh, don't like to don't like to bring up a problem without pitching a solution, right? So the room full of people, I said. Why don't we say, like, we will not be involved, right, at a certain point? And, you know, like, okay, well, when? And I said, okay, well, how about race? You, you can't call race under the criteria, no matter what criteria they meet, if the patient is over 110 years old, to which everybody in the room laughs, right? And I'm like, okay, well, at least, we've, you know, we've, at least we've, to us, we've established it, right? But there should be a certain point at which you don't know. No, we're not doing any of this, right? And, and again, we're not talking about a 20-year-old guy who broke his arm. We're right. talking about somebody who's in the 90th year of their life and has all the associated illnesses. And people say, well, you know, she was playing tennis yesterday. Uh, I, I totally get it. Totally get it. Hmm. But but what you're asking us to do, and again, short-term, you know, like, you know, she's got a pneumonia and needs intubation. That's, that's a completely different story. Yeah. But we're at end-of-life situation, and it's not, shouldn't really be a discussion. It should be us saying, look, I'm really sorry. And that's what senior um, staff people used to do. It's Steering changed. Dogs. Like we talked yesterday about the pendulum swinging. And I mean, it's swung to a point that it's like, uh, I'm coming to the end of the game and I'm, I'm liking where I'm leaving because they can't swing too much more. Yeah. One thing I wanted to say was I can't tell you how many times as either as a race doc or an ICU doc, or a palliative care doc, when I see somebody with stage four illness, a terminal illness, and that's predictable. We know that the patient's going to die. And I'm the first cat to tell them that it's terminal. Uh-huh. That is an atrocity. Yeah. That is ludicrous. You get, you get deer in the headlights, like to almost like people are almost stepping back from you when you say it. No, but absolutely. But like, how has no one brought yeah. this up? And like it, 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 the reason it's a, it's horrible is because everyone is afraid of taking away hope. But there's stuff that you, that patients will, they're missing out on by not knowing that they have a terminal illness. I think my father-in-law will be okay with me saying this. He's he's got recently got diagnosed with uh, stage four colon cancer, and 
I don't know if he he's come he's come we've seen him more in the last year than we've seen him in in ten years, and knowing that you know this is terminal this this has allowed for all these more meaningful interactions all this time spent with grandkids all this quality time you know what I'm saying and by you holding out oncologists whoever radiation oncologists you holding out by saying by not providing that info. Is not doing anybody any favors. Oh. I promise you that. Oh. I don't know. I I just it's to me it's crazy. I think in the early phases of an illness like that, sure, there's you know a need to uphold that you know spiritual connection to the disease where you don't lose hope, right? And I think that's why sometimes my loose understanding is that's why some don't pursue that type of conversation early. However, I do think when you reach, you know, stage three, stage four, there is that necessary preparation to say things could be great. Things may not. And this is how, you know, you take care of yourself. This is how you look after your family. You prepare your family. Um, And I say that because I recently took, not recently, a few years ago now, I took my stepdad into the hospital for head Uh, or neck and hip pain. And uh, he deteriorated in that week and passed away extremely quickly in intensive care, septic, uh, intubated on pressers. Um, It was very shocking. And it, we knew he had metastatic cancer, but we didn't know, no one prepared us with that picture. And I really explored that because, you know, I was grieving, I was angry. And uh, my, Learning from that was that, you know, an oncologist or um, whoever is the primary caregiver initially doesn't want to take away that hope so soon because there is that spiritual connection with the disease that if you their thought is that if you broach that subject, it could really, you know, change their trajectory and, you know, they could lose their will to live um, and die a lot faster. So and my opinions today are influenced by my experience as a loved one who has lost somebody in the ICU. So that will color my responses. Um, All that to say, I can see why maybe they're not had right away, but I think there is a point that we have to probably define of when we need to have that conversation. Absolutely. And, and, and kind of like Marcel was mentioning, it's patient, patient centered. So maybe they don't want to know everything and which is, which is fine. You know, but I, as long as I got to tell you, man, I disagree with that. <laughs> I disagree I'll, with that. I'll go finish my point. It's like I'm going to cut you open and take something out, but I'm not going to tell you what. You, know, you got we, we can fix what you got. You know, I mean, imagine that. Imagine you, you're yeah, going to have if, surgery, but I'm not going to tell you. If somebody's telling you like they can't handle it right now, like all all like if you think about it, someone that's got a new diagnosis okay. of, okay. of okay. cancer, they, they bet like how many oncologists, like like a surgeon, an oncologist, radiation oncologist, so much information in a short period of time. Yeah. Yes, there's, there's got to be a digestion period or what or whatever, and maybe they're going to at some point need to know. Obviously, yes, yes, but. I don't know if it has to be. I'm not necessarily saying it has to be right away. I'm just saying before it they're in hospital, be. I as a complication agree. from what the the treatment. So, someone's got to have this conversation. And, you, and, and this agree. is my experience, right? Yeah. And you have to almost pound that on somebody just for them to sort of hear it a little bit, because we've I've been at meetings where the physician was excellent, right? and was clear about the fact of what's going to happen here. And everybody that exited that room did not have that that. message because I'm worth them for the next five, six hours and they don't know what's going on. And when the patient dies, they're like, what, what's happening? You know what I mean? And and not what's happening. Like, like, you know, the, the line just stopped moving up there or whatever. Like they're, they're not aware of the patient's going to pass. And it was, to me, it was clear. And again, I'm probably seeing it with, you know, healthcare eyes and the jargon that he used maybe flew over the head a little bit. But I'm a firm believer that you have to, before you have surgery, you have to sign a waiver. And you have to say, you know, there's a small percentage. It's less than two, right? But there's a small percentage of people who, you know, have complications and have negative outcomes from this, right? Yeah. That's that you have to do that before you have surgery with them. And I think at some point, again, it doesn't have to be like immediately, but it, it has to be ensured that it's done. 
Yeah. You know, and long before they show up in, in a hospital and, um, and they're having those complications that we all know were going to happen. And then the family, you know, someone says to them, well, what would you like us to do? Crazy. Mm -hmm. Right. And next thing we're there as the race team and being asked to resuscitate somebody who we know, you know, you could measure their life expectancy literally in hours. Right. Mm -hmm. And further to the point that I made earlier was, you know, why is it so much easier for me to talk with my family who are not sick and say, we will die. Everyone will die. That's this is a, a very important point. Everybody out there, we will all <laughs> die. This is a certainty. So why is it so much more difficult to have that conversation with somebody who may have a disease process going on that will hasten that time frame? Mm. That's what I don't understand. Why is it, you know, something that we can't talk about with people or we make it so delicate when mm. it's a certainty. That's yeah. the thing I don't understand. And I think when you have that conversation that I was describing where the, nobody picks it up, I think it's because, and it's understandable, they're extremely stressed, right? This yeah. is yeah. coming to a head for a lot of people. And because it wasn't discussed prior, this is coming as a shock to a lot of people where it shouldn't be. In and addition. Not, and, it's not, and it's not doing them any favors. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's not doing the patient any good for everyone to be in the dark about ultimately what's most likely happen. Yeah. Um, and a lot of this comes down to trusting the healthcare team, like in terms of like when it comes to proposing a plan. And I mean, when I teach communication to the kids, one of the main things I said is, I always say is like, you got to establish rapport, yo, like you got to make sure that they have faith in you. And by doing like emphatic statements and by listening to their story, this is how these are easy ways to establish that rapport. But something in the last little while, kind of like G and I were talking about Gianni, that people don't trust us mm. like they used to. It's probably because of this podcast. Probably. It's probably because <laughs> of the quadcast. Um, I do not know where it's coming from. And it might be that because you mentioned so we just mentioned Dr. Google, but it has made things very difficult. And we, we discussed this yesterday. I think some of it is that that um, uh, World Health Organization recommendations for, you know, getting the flu shot and Jenny McCarthy have the same weight to a lot of people. Celebrity right? had the same weight as uh, a, experts. They, they, they tell you that that's the, you know, hmm, I don't know. I'm on the fence here. I mm. <laughs> have some of the. Best minds in the planet telling me I should get my flu shot. But, you know, I, I don't know if it's such a good idea because someone said otherwise. And the thing is, we have the most information accessible generation we've ever had mm. as a result of technology. Google social media has made it so easy to obtain knowledge from anywhere. Mm. And, uh, you know, I used to lead journal clubs. And one of the things I would teach about journal clubs is the necessity for scholarly information and where that comes from. You know, is it Wikipedia? No. Is it a high impact journal? Scholarly journal? Yes. You know, and you really have to question where we're getting our information from. And so back to your point about Dr. Google and, you know, why there's this lack of trust, I think partially it's because of, you know, people can just go online and access information and pull up, you know, uh, um, aneurysm dissection and read about it. But what I always tell my family members in my care is that search engine doesn't know that your your loved one's test values. They don't know the x-ray results that were taken from your loved one. They don't know, you know, all of the imaging that we've done, the testing, your physician and your care team know the patient. And the article wasn't talking about elective surgery and it doesn't know yeah. that you have renal failure. That's right. It doesn't your know diabetes your diabetes has been out of control for. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And so I always, when they, when, you know, family members are searching for this information and, you know, trying to be helpful and, trying to understand it themselves, I always remind them and say that article is not taking into account everything that's going on uniquely. And that's where, you know, our expertise is really informing that and knows how to proceed with a care plan. Yeah. But how does it affect you guys though? Cause like from, from the MD side, it's usually just conversation. Usually it's 
family member saying, did you consider this? And you, as you mentioned, you explained why it doesn't apply to the patient or their loved one. How how's it affecting you from the day to day? This like lack of trust or this Doctor Google phenomenon. My thought on it is is that I rapport is extremely important. You cannot be the bad cop because you are the liaison for the team. You're the you're the closest they have to someone that they can talk to that knows what's going on on a regular basis. But I try to establish that rapport. One of my tricks I say tricks, but is to give them a preamble of what's going to happen on any given day mm. and essentially give them a synopsis of the meeting that they're going to have with the physician and what he's going to tell you about. And when they hear that for the second time, which nine times out of 10 is almost exactly what I've said, that builds a confidence that, oh, you must know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's... It's when you don't have that, it's, you know, it's, it's extremely difficult when the family doesn't trust you because you're so involved in your, in their care. And now they're asking about every single thing that you're doing. That's the worst case scenario. Yeah, it's tough. I will share a story, um, based on my own experience. Um, there was like one night during my stepdad's stay in hospital where I knew things were not going well. And I had had the nurse call the physician in to discuss, you know, a possible admission to ICU. And we had this long discussion and I left the room. And this is after being a nurse for six, seven years. I don't even know how long it was at that point. And I just remembered leaving the room thinking, what did we just talk about? Mm -hmm. And I, I just remember going back to my stepdad and just trying to think, okay, like we're, we're just, we're going to try to help you here. Mm -hmm. And even with my professional knowledge, the shock just clouds your brain. Mm -hmm. I have to, I tell everyone that, that, you know, I understand now why sometimes you have to repeat things a few times when it's an hour, it's hard when Mm -hmm. we're trying to do what we do, especially when it's, you know, a tense situation of instability. But I, that little insight kind of made me realize, okay, people don't absorb knowledge mm. normally, right? Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I have always, but more so now, tried to spend a little bit of time saying, like, did you understand everything that was just said to you? Do you understand the impact of this? You know, write down your questions, save them for me. And mm. when I have five minutes, I will, you know, come and answer them. I think literally handing somebody a pen and a piece of paper actually helps minimize the interruptions that I get because Mm. they're able to consolidate the questions they have, you know, and they know that I've promised them five or 10 minutes of my time. And it's, you know, a mutual, I'm meeting them halfway, you know, and Mm. I say, I can't talk right now. And I can't be interrupted in this moment. I, you know, your loved one really needs me, but I will get back to you. Right. Um, it's just like telling a patient, I'm going to come back for you. It's, you know, that, that promise uh, that for me helps build that relationship of trust. Yeah. And I don't have many, I've, I haven't had many interpersonal conflicts with family. I felt that that approach has always worked with me professionally and one that I extend to nurses that I do teach. Um, but it was unbelievable how shock really clouds just your understanding of things. And this is in a context where the day before I had brought my stepdad in for, you know, neck and hip pain, he was mowing the lawn. Uh And a week later, Uh it's like, how did this happen? Uh And so um, there's so many contexts that I feel family, like when you get that call or you, they realize that their loved one is not doing well. There's so much in the background that we don't see Uh Not that we should be, you know, spending hours and hours and hours of our day trying to get them there because of the needs of their loved one is much more dire and they need our help there. But um, I do understand kind of how those conversations can be tricky. There's that supply and demand that the resources really is what our healthcare system is lacking to support that time that they need. Do you know, doing this show actually... I, I got to tell you, what you're saying has been a common 
theme. Right. Like how difficult it is to register things during that period of shock. Um, right. like, and and that, that's interesting that you have a medical background as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, so, so it's not, it's not like the jargon's going over your head. No. Either. Yeah. I understood no. the jargon and, you know, it was probably like maybe if I could, you know what? I couldn't even tell you exactly how long the conversation was. Yep. I just remember thinking, okay, we're, we're getting him help. And, and I bet even then, right. They're talking to you as a healthcare professional because you probably identified yourself as a nurse and you worked critical care. Right. Yeah. So, so the conversation is even more, you know, less vague, yes. right? And you're still afterwards. I mean, which is a perfect example, I think, right? Of of how it it you're you're told things that probably in any given day you would in any other day in any other situation, if it was your patient, you'd yeah. retain that no problem. Right? Yeah. And yeah. I never understood that prior to that experience. And mm-hmm. I, you know, as a young nurse, as a you know, early in my career, probably didn't appreciate it. You know, just kind of thought, oh, okay, I have to say this again. Okay. Mm-hmm. We'll sit down and we'll say it again. But now it's just like what you said in your last podcast about how when somebody hugs you, you can tell that they've had a certain experience. You mm-hmm. know, um, if they've had a loss, they, you know, mm-hmm. it's that like, yeah. I know that I have I this, I have to be gentle with this person. You know, they need a little bit more time for comprehension. Um, that balance between what you need to do as a nurse at the bedside is hard. It's very, very challenging because you want to be there for your patient who really needs you, mm-hmm. um, you know, needs your expertise, but you need, you feel that pull to be there for the family member who needs your emotional support. And it's really hard for me to divide that to balance that. and to balance it yeah, I, in a 12 hour shift. I got to tell you, it's been extreme. Like it's been so eye opening hearing some of these stories about how things aren't registered or, or some of the just nuances of being on the other side of be, like being a family member, a patient during a hospitalization. It's like um, even uh, uh, James Downer, he's doing a study on how we can make bereavement for family members, make it a, a more easier experience. Cause the amount of family members that say that have questions afterwards, like despite, you know, the having to sit down with the doc, the whole team, plain language, all this stuff is going going on, and they still have some unanswered questions. Things aren't registering, and I'm glad you bring it up because, honestly, we don't want this to be any more difficult than it has to be. Like, this is the toughest times of all these guys' lives, and and I, I think bringing this, these issues up and acknowledging them is, is part of the process of making it better. Um, I certainly hope James's uh, project gets gets well adapted there, but uh, that's for another talk. But Well, further to that discussion, um, you know, I don't think that the public knows necessarily how to manage a situation uh, or a conflict with a team, um, either during that situation or after the patient has passed. And, you know, there's ombudsman um, personnel that can help manage and explore, you know, something that's going on. Um you can have you can request to meet with the team and review you know a morbidity and mortality case and you know meet with the you know whatever um, care team management group there is you know if it's an ICU manager or um, there's a system in place that I think people don't realize that you can actually meet with a team after the fact get some answers and that's what I did so I had contacted the hospital to say I have concerns. I, things don't make sense. I'd like to explore this. You know, I want to ask questions. Um, You know, it leads us into the discussion that we talked about yesterday a little bit about how families are now taking to social media to share their frustrations with care teams and hospitals or Mm. specific nursing personnel, sometimes with even photos that they've taken on their devices at the bedside without the permission of whomever is in the photo. Uh, you know, stories are shared and it just paints these healthcare teams in such a poor light. And due to privacy laws, healthcare institutions, healthcare providers, et cetera, are not allowed to even defend themselves because mm. of the breach of confidentiality that they'd be risking. Which yeah. is why I was violating. going on as, as Tyler Durden when I comment on this. <laughs> Facebook so, so if you see Tyler Durden, you know that's I know exactly. My this son. is so not true. <laughs> you know, and I've seen, I've read, you know, um, 
stories and papers where I'm familiar with what's being discussed. I know I could almost pinpoint exactly Mm. who that patient or the family is. And it is, there is two sides and the side that's being presented is arguably slanderous and, you know, biased. And there's very important contextual factors that are not included. Omissions of all types, right? mm, Omissions of past medical history and or maybe things that they said that were not understood or or just frankly not true not true and then like what gets me is you know if people are going to be and often it's the family of the patient would that pay and then i think would that patient want this in the news that's a good point would it would they want this in you know the news of the city and to be kind of explored and, you know, thrown around. I just think probably not like who is this serving? We always go back to who is this serving? And number two, um, it's just not the appropriate way to be handling kind of a conflict or if there's any issue. Which goes to what I was talking about yesterday (laughs) about, about suing somebody. (laughs) <laughs> right? Do you, do you want to elaborate on that? Well, I, I, it's 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 crazy, and I, I'm I'm talking facetiously to a certain extent, but it seems that everything that we do is to a certain extent is litigation driven, right? The the physician ultimately has a plan that is derived from his extensive knowledge, supported by the rest of the team, but because of the family member potentially, you know. Having a protracted lawsuit, which could you know be devastating to a career, you can't. And I, my, my thinking is, well, the only way you can fight that that I see is suing a family. Which again, you know, that's not that's not going to happen. But I just wonder what would happen if if you read a read a headline in the news on the newspaper tomorrow that said that you know Marcel Rochette RN is suing you know family on behalf of the Canadian taxpayer on half of the patient on half of the care team that was traumatized by having to take care of this moribund patient, et cetera, et cetera. And it didn't even have to go anywhere. It's just, I, I think it would you know, bring that pendulum back a little bit. Just maybe start discussions, more people discussing the impact of futile care. Yeah. I mean, obviously you're, you're tongue in cheek here, but there is. I'm trying to talk somebody else into it is really what I'm trying to do. <laughs> but, it, but it would ultimately, once again, it comes down to that you want to be an advocate for the patient. You want to do what's best for the patient and their family often aren't. And what, for whatever is driving it, we actually even brought up the fact, I was going to ask you guys this question. Do you think a lot of these cases, if people had to pay out of pocket with some of these cases where we feel that the the patient would not want this care that they're being provided with and the family's pushing for whatever reason, do you think if, funds became an issue that things would change? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I think it would change if you insisted that they had to participate in the the, the care. Oh, like at the bedside, if they had to help <sighs> if you, if and we, see what, yeah. what we saw. Yeah. I think the other thing is is that the the public needs to understand that it is a limited amount of resources. Mm. We only have so many beds, right? And I was saying this yesterday, I say this to public all the time. If we kept everybody alive that we could, that family wanted to, the system would come to a standstill. Like mm. in it, you, there, we would have warehouses of patients on ventilators, on pressers, or because we can keep people alive for a very long time. Yeah. Right. And if you want to talk about, Hospital wait times, well, what do you think you're waiting for? You're waiting for a bed. You're waiting for the OR. You're waiting for whatever. And and this this is what we have to think about. We have to think about healthcare as as a bowl that we're putting our tax money into, and we have to take the money out of it judiciously. And, again, I can't stress to the public enough that you're, you're hearing us talk about, we're, we're talking about futile cases, but we don't have these conversations when a 25-year-old kid comes in from a car accident. We don't yeah. talk about, and he's got no past. We're going to put that kid back, in, and we're going to go to the mat for this kid. And, and we have a tremendous amount of personal responsibility for doing everything we can like he's our kid, right? right? And, and we got no problem. We never talk about, oh, it's costing a lot of money to get that kid back on his no. feet. Never, never, never comes up. Yeah, and I mean, and just to just uh, to flip that a bit too. I will 
you could be 95 years old and you have little medical concerns. I don't have a problem with bringing you with the, to the ICU if I think I can attain your goals. It's not your age. It's about am I going to be able to achieve your goal? You know, for example, if, some, if a woman that's 95 comes in with a bladder infection and she needs to be on uh, blood pressure medication, the, the levofed for Ooh. an hour, for a day or two, why wouldn't I bring her to ICU? She could go back home. She could have that quality of light. But once you get into a certain age and you need to be on a ventilator, you're not going to be the same person when you came back, when, before you came into hospital. That's such a good story. 95-year-old guy, okay, called for stroke-like symptoms, okay? Arrived there. He's, he's got none now. He was sitting up in a chair, drifted off to sleep, and when the nurse came in, and she's like, I see he had facial drooping. He couldn't move his right arm. Said so no problem, right? Look at his chart. This is an ongoing issue, right? I don't know if maybe when he just falls asleep, his blood pressure drops enough, but he has clear struggle. It's ongoing. He says clearly to me as I'm assessing him, I don't want any of this. If I don't go home today, right, or tomorrow, I lose my nursing bed and they will put me somewhere else. I want to go home. So I said, it's no problem, sir. They're like, this is an ongoing issue that you've been having or whatever. And the medical team that's there is setting this up for a CT scan. Mm. And I'm the nurse in the room, right? And my staff guy is like in a meeting or whatnot, which is unusual because he would have been all over this as well, right? And I'm like, let's imagine you have that CT scan now. And he's had, you know, an embolic event. Are you giving him lytics? Like, are you giving him something to, to break that? He's 95 years old. If he's, if he's having a stroke, what, like... You have the results. What are you doing with what them? What are you doing with the With info? a patient who's saying, I don't want this, yeah. right? And and I'm saying, like, I don't understand. Is it is that that you're afraid of the outcome? Because call your staff guy and tell him what's going on. I'll talk to him. Like, and I could not stop these people. Like, I I left. And I went by when I saw my staff guy. And I told him. And he goes, yeah, I would have done the same thing. Like, yeah. but they're going to take that guy for, you know, again, it's not like a CT scan is invasive, but it's. It's unnecessary, and the patient's clearly saying he doesn't want it. I don't know if he can stop them. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure he can if he has enough moxie. But I, I, I believe he went after this anyway, so he got back to his home, which is it. But, but the, the patient's goals in that who clearly stated does not want this, and and it's us still spending. That. Yeah. Well, and even you know, a CT in comparison to the procedures and things that we do is very non-invasive. Mm -hmm. However, there is still harm. Mm -hmm. There's radiation. Oh, radiation. He's got to lie still for, for whatever, five minutes or uh, not yeah. five minutes, two minutes for the CT. If they need Can contrast, he lie flat? IV. Can he have contrast? Does he have allergic reaction to the contrast? Um, There's and my line is, he got here, right? He got here to 95 with whatever he was doing. I wouldn't give him an aspirin. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Whatever he's Don't been doing has been working and he's saying he doesn't want this. I'd be like, dude, let me, I'll go get my car. I'll pull it around back. You just get your coat. I'm taking you wherever you want to go. Oh man. Yeah. Um, listen, I think we're up against it. So I, there's a couple things that I wanted to get out of you guys before we go. You've had nine and 30 years of, of nursing experience. And I want to hear from each of you a time where you were proud of your job, proud of being in the, in this profession. You were you got accolades from the family member saying, you know what, Carly, what you did was so meaningful to our family. Do you have any story or experience? I'm looking Does at myself. Does it have to be family? Member? No, it could be. Because I have one about Carly. Yeah, no, I don't even know if I can tell you, it. Yeah, do, we'll try. Okay, because you can always edit it. Yeah. Do you remember, patient got admitted early on in your career. And we had that ridiculous epidural pump, remember? And I came by to help you. Do you remember that? <laughs> Do you remember that? No, uh, you don't. She doesn't look you like were, it. You were in tears because your patient was in pain, came out of the OR. Someone had probably given him a bolus through the epidural by syringe, right? And, and you were like, you didn't have the pump. And you felt like you were failing mm. the patient. And I just I, I went directly to the patient and I said, listen, how much pain are you in on a scale of 10, which is a typical question. You said whatever it was, eight. And I said, listen, in two minutes, we're going to have it down to half of that. And three or four, we're going to have it down to less than two, right? And then I 
asked, told Carly to just get some fentanyl. It was going to work much faster, which I had ordered or he didn't, whatever. And we gave him some fentanyl and his pain came away. And then I had somebody who was an expert because I wasn't any better working at the epidural. It was a horrible piece of equipment. <laughs> and someone came in and one of those people who was really good at whatever and, and explained it to Carly, right? And then the guy was better. And the guy said, the guy said, you know, when you walked in and you looked at me and you talked to me like you did, I, I immediately felt better. Like I felt someone was going and, and, and that felt better almost than the pain control. Right. And then I, I explained to them the same way I was saying to Carol, it's horrible because it's no one's fault. Right. And that the epidural just doesn't work as fast as the fentanyl because, you know, that's it. But but the and that that was good. Right. And it like it's a moment. But 20 minutes later, we had another patient admitted who needed an epidural and Carly went over and explained to the room full of people mm. how to use that piece of equipment. Mm. Right. And I thought that it was such a apropos moment of this is what it's all about. Right. All, anything I know someone's taught to me or I've learned through, you know, trial and error. And there was a moment where we had a, a, a horrible situation and people and within 20 minutes, she's now, the expert. They're going to Carly. Oh, go, go call Car- Carly and knows how to work the machine. You know Carly's I mean? throwing down. She's throwing, Carly's throwing, throwing down, down knowledge. <laughs> Stop oh, man. She doesn't remember it. It kind of hurts just a little bit. <laughs> Listen, I have maternity leave cobwebs that I'm still dusting off. So don't worry. I don't even remember what I did yesterday. And I... Where am I right now? Why is this microphone in front of me? Oh, well. Thank you for that story. I, there's, you know, so many new nurses who get into, you know, nursing or critical care. There's so many early stories that are just, it's the growing pains of learning a new profession. Mm. And uh, very steep learning curve, especially in ICU. Extremely yeah. steep learning curve. Yeah. And um, no, I, you've taught me so much. I value you as a colleague immensely, Marcel and Quad, and uh, have always you know, we've, we've had so many chats, um, in the middle of the night, like when things are a little bit easier and you've taught me so much. And so it was... I tried to talk her out of marrying Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all had that conversation. You can do better. <laughs> Listen, I, I can't thank you enough for, for you guys doing this. It, it meant a lot. And I think you guys were true champions for the nursing community and, couple of things I wanted to mention, too, is I'd like to think that we, we, we learn from each other. And without a doubt, I know I've learned something from each each and one of you in certain certain uh, clinical scenarios where, you know, we're seeking your opinion, whether it's at the bedside or an acute situation on race, like having that input, having that expertise, having that humanism. I think it's really made you guys into exceptional professionals, and and I couldn't think of better guests to have on for today, and I I really appreciate y'all taking the time. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. It was fun. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Episode 6 with Carly and Marcel. I would like to thank our sponsors again, Medical Scribes of Canada, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you need to contact us, we're at quadcast99 at gmail.com. You could follow us at Twitter at Quadcast. Like our Facebook page at Quadcast and uh, connect with us there. Thanks, everybody. We'll, we should have episode seven out in a week. And uh, stay beautiful.